Hello and welcome once again to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And this is our episode for February, where we are going to be looking at a season in depth. Which one we'll reveal in a moment, because it was based, remember, on your feedback listeners. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Dave, this is a very short month. It is a very short month. I'm kind of amazed at just how quickly this recording has come around again, but we've still got a heap to talk about. Oh, we sure do. There's a ton of stuff, a ton of news, there's some mini topics, there is our season review, and we've got a lot of feedback as well to get through at the end of the episode. We have. So how are you, Rob? Oh, look, Dave, I'm really good. I was out on the beers last night with Jono Park from the Zeus Plug podcast. Hello, Jono. Um, so, so, so hang on, hang on. He's from New Zealand? He is from New Zealand. He is a Kiwi. So were you there across the ditch or was he over here? He was over here. He was over here in Sydney for a couple of days and he, he reached out and said, look, I'm in town. Let's let's get together and talk because, you know, just between you and me, Dave, Jono and I are talking about doing a non-Doctor Who podcast in the future. Interesting. Mm. So we were sort of hashing that out, drinking beers. We're drinking Kiwi beers, actually. That was quite funny. Uh, it was a good night. Oh, well, I hope, uh, Jono, if you're listening, I hope you enjoyed your time in the Emerald City. Good Good-o. Um, before we get into announcing our topic, I just wanted to say, Rob, look, we're always very pleased when we get any sort of feedback about our podcasts and, you know, people enjoying our discussions is always good to hear, but the just outpouring of genuine warmth and interest and love from our discussion about Terrence Sticks was really quite wonderful. It, it made what was already a very enjoyable podcast episode for us even more special and so thank you to everyone who listened thank you to everyone who tweeted us and wrote to us and emailed us or just got in touch to say guys really love that conversation because let's face it i guess everybody loves terence dicks and it was just really good to celebrate that oh yeah absolutely from from steve over at you and who saying how do we get this guy knighted you know on down it was just <laughs> just love 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 and i love to see that in in fandom because doctor who fandom like star wars fandom and star trek fandom and every sort of genre fandom at the moment is so split and divided and people just want to punch on all the time and sometimes it's even you know justified in some ways but you know let's not go down that path um <laughs> just once in a while it's nice that everyone loves something it's it's nice it's beautiful that is true i suspect that it's not going to be quite as undivisive and wholesome tonight <laughs> well, we'll see you might be surprised we'll see we'll see so we asked listeners at the end of our last podcast for you to nominate uh, which season of doctor who you would like rob and i to dive down deep into and have a look at and compare it to its legacy and all that sort of thing and we got some wonderful ideas really spread out ideas rob oh for sure we got tons of tweets and emails some of which we'll read at the end of the show and it was really mixed you know people going after old black and white eras some people wanting some new who stuff but i would say dave most people most not all uh wanted stuff from the jnt 80s kind of era yeah, that was very much the trend. So we had a look at that. There was no real standout. There were a few that were more popular than others. But yeah, a lot around the JNT era. Now, because I did trial watch less than a year ago and watched all of trial over 14 weeks, I just personally asked if we could put that one aside for now. Not not because, you know, oh my God, I couldn't stand watching trial again, but just because I've, I feel like I've said what I have to say about trial recently and i don't want to just be repeating myself i want to have new ideas so we, mm. we put that aside 
And but, also, I was going to say, also, there was some McCoy love, but I find McCoy gets reevaluated an awful lot on podcasts, so I sort of stuck my hand up and said, eh, he kind of gets done a lot on podcasts. I'm not too sure about McCoy stuff, even though I quite enjoy his era. Yeah, that's right. And we did have a look at the Davison era not that long ago, but in the middle of that all, there were a lot of votes for season 22, and we thought, you know what? Lots of people want the JNT era. Lots of people are voting for Colin seasons, whether it's 22 or 23. I hadn't watched it in a long time, and I thought, I would really like to go back and watch this and have another look at it. So I was keen, and Rob, you were keen as well. Yeah, it was a no-brainer. It wasn't Davo or McCoy. It was a JNT season, and it was Colin. It, it, it ticked all the boxes, you know, and it's not what you all voted for, I know, but it's a significant number voted for, Colin at least. That's right. So we will be looking at season 22 as the main part of this podcast. I'm looking forward to it. I have mixed views, I have to say, and different views here and there. But we've also got some good ideas for future season deep dives. The idea does seem to have a bit of popularity out there. But before then, Rob, we have some news and you're going to kick us off. Yeah, we certainly do. So let's blast through this, Dave. There's a new book coming out from the people over at ATB Publishing. You might know these guys. They did the red, white and blue or was, was it Red, White and Who book? Uh, I, I should know because I bought it. It was about Doctor Who fandom in the US. It was the size of a brick too. I remember um, you reviewing that. Yes, I remember mm, that. They're, they're putting out this book by Anthony Wilson and Robert Smith, uh, who are both well-known in fandom, and it's called Bookworm, and Worm is spelled W-Y-R-M. So you might already have a feel for what this might be talking about. Yes, it's talking about the NAs, the new adventures from 91 to 97. It's basically a, a guide to them, an unauthorised and unconventional guide, they're calling it. That's really piqued my interest, Rob. Mm, I thought it might. And because it's not the size of a brick, it's a lot cheaper than the Red, White and Who book as well. Oh, good. No, I'll definitely be, uh, I'll definitely be getting that. I'll be very interested to see uh, what it is and how they cover it. It's really interesting because the one disadvantage of a really good book series is that you can't just go back, put on a story, and 90 minutes later you've rewatched it. Like, not that the new adventures take days and days to read, but there is a commitment to go back and say, gee, I'm... I'd like to read Legacy again, or I'd like mm. to read Lungbarrow again, and, well, that's a few evenings reading, as opposed to, I can just put it on while I'm doing the ironing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm really looking forward to this. I, I've i already pre-ordered one. I uh, tweeted it out. I'd already got some retweets from the, the folks over there in the States who are putting it together. So I was happy to see that, you know, a bit of love around the world. Some more love, Dave and Phantom. Isn't that a good thing? It <laughs> is a good thing. And um, I also slipped in a mention, and by the way, did you see our NAs and MAs show last year? So that's also getting a bit of love, uh, some fresh love as well, people rediscovering that episode we did. Oh, good, good. I really enjoyed that one. Mm. Some news of a different variety, one that I think came completely out of left field, the BBC has announced it is releasing an animated virtual reality Doctor Who film in 2019. Yes, now I've seen a bit of this, well not the film itself, but like screenshots from it and stuff. It's it's the Whitaker Doctor, you know, and it's it's virtual reality. They're they're really pushing the boat out here, you know, having a real crack trying to do new things, you know, with the property. Yeah, so it's going to be called Doctor Who the Runaway. It'll be a 12-minute piece, and I am genuinely curious as to what this is, and I get the feeling this is a very much about the BBC 
pushing a little bit further into new media, new frontiers, and what better way to do that than with Doctor Who? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this new uh, TARDIS interior isn't a fave of yours and it's not a fave of mine, but I'm still curious, you know, to be able to, to sort of walk around in that space with, you know, a sort of an, an animated doctor talking to you and, and look from side to side, maybe turn a circle and see it 360 degrees. I think that's still quite an interesting experience to have. I'll, I'll certainly, you know, download it or however you get it. Yeah, look, I have absolutely no idea how you acquire these things or play these things, and I'll, I'll be curious to see what happens. Uh, my interest is less about this per se, as in I, I'm not de- particularly desperately interested in seeing this 12 minutes, but it is a case of, okay, if this 12 minutes works, what do they then do with the technology in perhaps a more, in inverted commas, serious manner or a bigger scale? Oh, wouldn't a virtual reality episode of the show be good? Yeah, so it's you know you look back at that you know the first thing that the BBC ever did on um, you know as a streaming show for example, and mm. now that streaming is a is a major major way of consuming media. But there there was a first, there was a tiny little first, and and this is that, and I'm very curious to see where this goes. Yeah, and and there is a precedent using Doctor Who for these things in the past as well. I guess they think Doctor Who fans might be a bit more techie slash nerdy slash geeky slash into this sort of you know using new technology kind of stuff whether it's back in the 90s when they were messing around with multimedia really basic multimedia or whether it's something like this oh i can absolutely say from personal experience and what i've seen doctor who fans are very much early adapters they were many of the first people i knew to have cd players the first people to have dvd players they got on the internet not just with basic programs but you know many of them had more expensive internet programs and 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 and, um packages well before they were common so yeah i think doctor who fans are very much early adapters and it makes a lot of sense to aim this at them and the final thing i just want to add is for those people who were on twitter saying they were disappointed that this was the big news to be released at midnight guys nothing big is released at midnight. So <laughs> the next time the BBC comes down and says there'll be news at midnight, all that means is that a media embargo is lifting on a story. It might be an interesting story. It might be a nice story. It will not be a new Doctor. It will not be a new season. It will not be missing episodes. That will be done during the daytime with a press conference. Just oh. just lets everybody just calm down about these midnight things and not being disappointed because they're not going to be what you think they are. It's just not... <laughs> Exactly. Although it's easier for us here because midnight in the UK is a far more respectable time here. So so we can be up in inverted commas for these uh, announcements anyway. Yeah, we can, we can just have Twitter on you know, over lunch and see yeah. what's going on. We don't have to be specially getting up to, to watch them and then be like, oh, I stayed up for this. Come yeah, on. exactly. Uh, moving along, Big Chief. Big Chief make uh, the big 12-inch uh, figures, Dave. Have you seen those? They're, they're like you know got little outfits and so on you know all the different doctors some of the companions i'm 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 vaguely aware i've seen pictures tweeted i've never seen one in real life oh okay they're, they're, they're lovely i actually own some you know they've done a hartnell they're looking at doing a pertwee they've done a tom baker they've got a, an eccleston a couple of matt smiths you know a, a, a tenant you know they've, they've done some really good work and I think it's a sign of the times in, in two ways. Uh, first of all, I think the, the market for this sort of stuff might be waning a bit because the company's saying, 
let's uh, sort of get people's interest in our next figure, and then if we can get you know 500 people interested, we'll we'll do it. Um, I think that's just a sign of the times in that sort of figure industry. But at the same time, their next figure is a Jodie Whittaker. And i got to tell you, Dave, this is a 40-day campaign to try and get 500 people interested. Not even putting their money down, but just interested. And the campaign is still in the low 300s. They haven't even cracked 500 people yet who will buy a Jodie Whittaker figure. When in the past, they have sold thousands of tenants, smiths, you know, even Hartnell, there was a run of at least 500 of Hartnell. You know, people bought Hartnell very happily, but Whitaker, ooh, at least in this market, people don't want to buy a Whitaker 12 inch figure. Is that because of the lack of nostalgia? Look, it could be. I mean, the, the, the classic doctors are quite popular in this range, but people were buying Tennant not long after he'd left the role. They were buying Capaldi when he was still in the role, you know, and, and they happily sold, I think, about a thousand Capaldis. Okay, that, that is interesting. I mean, nostalgia is my first guess because I do think that these sort of things do naturally play to that nostalgia, that fond memory. Even something, you know, that's three or four years ago could be nostalgic. And that's why I felt they went for. But no, I, I don't have any insider explanation beyond that guess. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I'm wondering whether they'll even hit the 500, whether they'll make the figure or whether they'll do it in a different way. I mean, these 500, they're saying, look, if, you, if you're the first 500, you'll get a, a signed plaque from Jodie Whittaker. You'll get free international postage. You'll get all these little extras. They're really trying to beef it up and make it very, very attractive to collectors. And they still can't crack... Well, they've barely cracked 300, and they, they, they were wanting to crack 500. It, uh, I think it's just notable to, to just mention. No, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely intrigued by that, and mm. I'll be looking for an update from you, Rob, in a month's time as to whether they got to the 500. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a quick piece from me. There was an article in the Radio Times, uh, which is titled, with a bit of a nod to clickbait perhaps, Mandeep <laughs> Gill reacts to Doctor Who fans shipping Yaz and Jodie Whittaker's Doctor. <laughs> well, you got to give Yaz something to do. <laughs> Look, this I think was all a bit of a beat up based on that typical mother joke that we saw in one of those episodes. I think it was the Arachnids episode, Rob, mm. where the, the mother made the joke like, you know, always wanting her daughter to be hitched to somebody like, oh, here's your friend, is he your boyfriend? Oh, here's your friend, is he your boyfriend? Oh, well, well, she's your friend, is she your girlfriend? Sort of that joke about, I actually don't care whether you're dating a guy or a girl, I just <laughs> wish you were dating someone. You know, anyone is better than nothing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, I, I thought that's was with a joke, but people, people saw it as being not a joke and actually being a genuine, no, no, Yaz has come out to her mother as bisexual, so she's naturally asking, is it a boy, is it a girl? I, I get the feeling, and, 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 if, and if it was, you know, is, is the doctor involved, etc., etc. Uh, so Mandeep Gill says... It must have just been natural chemistry between Jodie and I. And the article says, however, despite being unplanned, Gill suggested that she wouldn't be adverse to some sort of relationship developing. Now, during this article, Mandeep Gill is sort of a bit shocked that we never intended this, so we don't know why people are shipping it, which suggests to me she doesn't know what shipping really is. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, there are some weird and wonderful and lovely characters shipped out there in the internet. And look, deep down, I'm sure we've all got our our favourite little private ships that we entertain, but... Look, <laughs> yeah, let's not get into those. <laughs> no, 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 we definitely won't. But, yeah, Mandip's just saying, hey, we had no idea, we didn't intend this, but, hey, that's cool, and, hey, internet, who knows what could happen? Wink, wink, tune in next year and find out. 
Yeah, I don't think it'll be anything, Dave, do you? No. No. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, really brief now. Uh, 10th Planet Events is closing in the UK. Well, sort of. They say the people behind it are retiring, but they might be doing something in the future. It's all a bit vague, but they are having a sort of a closing down sale with 10% off. This is where you go to get Doctor Who autographs. Uh, I found it particularly useful over the years to get autographs of people I would never see at conventions. For example, I got a Nicholas Courtney autograph through them before he re- uh, passed away. They are a very reputable, reputable mob. You can buy from them with confidence. I fully recommend them and they're sort of going out of business so get in while you can i've actually put in a little order picked up a a philip hinchcliffe and and a few sound people and you know some more obscure autographs that i just would never get out here in a million years and they're reasonably cheap too yeah they do have that very good reputation as you say rob for being extremely reliable and reputable so look it's not something i've ever purchased from but they've always been a part of fandom and i've always been very aware of them so everything moves on and if people who are doing the running are moving on in their life that's perfectly fair and reasonable and probably sensible at some point but it is a shame yeah it is they, they've run a, a whole bunch of little events and little signings that people can go along to in the past six months they did a peter purvis signing over in the uk and while that was going on i got them to to get me a peter purvis signature so it's you know it's signed to rob from peter purvis you know my my favorite male companion of the 60s uh, it's a shame i just didn't get to meet him in the process but you know can't have everything no no but but fair enough hmm shall we move on uh yes so we've got a mini topic each we just wanted to discuss rob before we get to our main topic yeah i wanted to mention to you i've been listening to some big finish that's really interesting because you're sometimes quite not standoffish but maybe a bit uh What's the word, Dave, for you and Big Finish? Cautious, cautious. That's a great word. I was curious. So, as you know, I've always been a fan of the Virgin New Adventures and Missing Adventures. Mm. And I have in the past listened to a couple of their adaptations of the three Gareth Roberts, Tom Baker stories. And I thought it was time to actually listen to a few more. So I bought a few more. I bought some of the McCoy ones. So I've listened to The Higher Science. I've listened to Nightshade. And I've listened to Love and War, which were three of my favorite books and i more or less enjoyed them i thought that a couple were better than the other one i'll I'll, I'll say it the nightshade disappointed me i think that there was too much in that book that they just couldn't make into a 90 minute adventure and what they had to take out really took out the meat of the story and 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 that to me was a shame it didn't quite work However, I thought they adapted the higher science and love and war really well. There were small plots and, you know, C plots and D plots in that you could take out and still leave the bulk of the story uh, to work. Mm-hmm. And and McCoy's good in them. Sophie Aldred's good in them. Lisa Barryman, Barryman, I think it is, who plays Benice Summerfield in that was very good. So I, I enjoyed that and I've ordered a couple more to um go and, go and listen to. In fact, I've basically ordered all the... Uh, virgin novel adaptions apart from the one with nick briggs's face on the cover because that just looked like <laughs> too much of a um an ego trip cd for me so I've, I've i've paused on that one and i'll be honest here rob it's really summed up for me the pros and the cons of the big finish ranges i've always experienced them. Mm-hmm. the pro is that it gives you this way to do different stories in a different format that that can explore stuff that you couldn't afford to do, like adapting novels, stories with old doctors and different companions. It, that is a good thing. Like I, I've never said that's a bad thing. It is a very good thing that big finishes out there and can do them. But the negative side of it was having listened to a few of these and ordered a couple of more. I thought 
Maybe it's time I give Big Finish a bit of a broader look. I'll, I'll go on the website. Maybe I'll find a couple of other stories to buy and have a listen to. And every category I'd go to, it would be like, there are 82 uh, topics. <laughs> there, are, there are 82 titles in this range, or there are 120 titles in this range. And yeah. I just thought, you know, sod that for a game of soldiers. Mm. I'm, I'm just not going to do it. Like, I'm, I'm very curious to listen to a couple of the later Tom Baker ones. I, I listened to one or two of the Tom and... Uh, Mary Tam ones when they first came out wasn't that impressed to be honest but I'm told they've got a lot better the ones with him and Louise Jamison for example are I'm told very good but how do you know which of the 20 something stories is the one to dip into and I just sort of walk away going this is this is too much I'm overwhelmed goodbye yeah yeah I I feel that way with the range too but one thing I will say you know because I you know, I joke about Big Finish at the best of times, you know, when they take obscure characters and do box sets on them and stuff. That's just ripe for parody. But one thing I will say is, look, when we look back in another 10 years' time and, you know, Tom Baker's probably left this mortal coil, you know, maybe some of the other Doctors have, you know, people like Sylvester and Colin are, you know, in their 70s now, aren't they? Oh, yes. There will be a time where... Uh, all the classic doctors have, have departed, you know, even my dear Davo, and there'll be all this stuff to dip into and remember them by. And I, I kind of think I, I've always got Big Finish sort of at arm's length, but knowing it's there is kind of comforting in a way. Does that sound weird? Uh, no, no, not at all. I, I totally get where you're coming from. And in fact, another example of that is um, another one that I bought and listened to was Frostfire, which is a companion chronicle which is basically a story being read by Maureen O'Brien as Vicky. And I bought that one because uh, listening to an episode of Flight Through Entirety, they talked about the Mythmakers and said, oh, this is a sequel to the Mythmakers told by Vicky. I thought, well, you know, my curiosity is peaked there. I will go and listen to this. And look, it was a lovely little story. It was lovely to hear Maureen O'Brien again playing that character. Am I going to go back and listen to it again? Probably not. Mm. Um, have I really got my real value from the price that it cost me to get it out here? Uh, maybe not. But it's lovely to know it's there. It's lovely to have it. And they will be there forever. Yeah. So it could be in 10 years' time that I need to drive to Kubapedia or something and go, right, I'll get myself five big finishes from 20 years ago and I can listen to the you know, sadly departed Tom Baker. Yeah, exactly right. And it sounds like you're buying the discs too. Is that right? Uh, yes, it is, because I've never quite worked out how to make Big Finish work on an iPhone. Oh, okay. I, I have, and I've got to say I'm really enjoying the app. I mean, I, I buy mostly discs as well, but the beautiful thing is when you buy the disc, you get the download for free on your account. You do, yes. So I've found that some of my discs here I've not even opened. They're just sitting on the shelf still in cellophane because I've downloaded it on the app and then listened to it on the app, and that's actually quite a good app. I might have to show you next time you're up in Sydney. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, it is on my to-do list to play around and work out how to do that app so I don't have to buy CDs. But again, I can I can be grumpy old man here and say, well, why should I have to work out an app just to play your product? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give you one reason, and this happened when I bought my new car uh, middle of last year. My new car, Dave, didn't come with a CD player. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, Mazda in my particular model of car had, had done away with the CD player earlier versions of the model had had it but the revision model which mine was of this particular car no no we're not having it it's just an entertainment system with you know a radio and bluetooth and all of that but there is no CD player 
Um, you know, so you've got to, you know, stream off your phone or stick mm, in a USB mm. stick or, or something. So having these things digitally is quite useful without having to rip them yourself. Oh, absolutely. And I'm a big use, user of the, the car Bluetooth, don't get me wrong. Oh, um, podcasts just, all the time, yeah. Yeah, just Big Finish has historically been a little bit funny with iPhones and it's, you know, I, I remember once when I was overseas having to, like, download some workaround app and it's just, no, no, I'll, I'll just buy the CD. But, but yeah, look, I have, have listened to Big Finish and I'm going to listen to a few more over the next couple of months. Oh, very good. My... Um short topic this week is I think I'm coming out of a Doctor Who rut, Dave. I think I have one of these every year after a new series. Not because the series is particularly bad or, you know, whatever. I just think I get hooed out, you know, and and need a couple of months rest. Yeah, no, no, totally understand that. And one of the things that's got me through these past couple of months is I finally pulled up, the for those in Australia, the, the SBS app on my television and have been watching The Orville. And I have been loving it. Yes, okay. So I watched the first probably third of season one of The Orville and I didn't dislike it. In fact, I mostly enjoyed it, but I... I my feeling was it hadn't quite decided what it was yet and it was quite awkward to watch. And so it kind of uh, accidentally, non-deliberately fell off my viewing schedule. But you've obviously stuck with it. Oh, absolutely. I've I've been binging it and, you know, blasted through all the available episodes and now I'm actually watching it week to week. And I've got to say the, the episode that went out this week that I watched just tonight before we came on the air, uh, it's called Identity Part 1. I won't give it away, but my God, at the end of it, I turned to my wife and said, this is a comedy because it's pretty heavy what happens in this episode. I mean, there's heavy, there's, there's been heavy stuff in many episodes uh, throughout. You know, that, that's one point I'll make. It's not quite a comedy. Sure, people say funny stuff here and there, but often the topics and what happens in the episodes is very, very serious. And this one that went out, well, the one that I watched tonight at least, wow. It was, I'll, I'll say this, a lot of crew members got killed. Wow. Yeah, it's, it, 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 it wasn't like, you know, happy fun time laughs at the, at the cantina on the ship. It was, it was people were getting killed and it's, it's ended on a real cliffhanger. And I'm like, holy hell, where's this going? You're not the first person in the last month, Rob, to say something similar to me. A number of people who... Uh, fell off the Orville in season one, got gave it another go in season two, and they seem to be uniformly saying, this is a big step up, it's a lot more focused, the, the topics and the issues are really good, get back on this show, come join us back on this horse. Yeah, oh look, it's it's great, and I know Seth MacFarlane isn't everyone's cup of tea, in fact I, I tried introducing the show to some people at work, and they're like, oh Seth MacFarlane's in that, I can't stand him, he's so smug, he's so this, he's so that, I'm like, Really? He's my man crush. <laughs> which which kind of surprised them. He is pretty smug though. <laughs> yeah, he is, but he's also very talented, you know. <laughs> Have you heard him sing jazz? Uh no, and I feel like I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> he's very good. You're sounding like the people at my work, Dave. <laughs> Uh, no, look, Seth MacFarlane is one of those people I have a genuinely very long list of praise for and a not quite as long but substantive list of uh, negatives about him. I think he's that sort of a character. Um, <laughs> my question for you, is it possible as a viewer to just come back and start with episode one of season two or would actually catching up properly and watching the rest of season one be necessary? 
Oh, look, I don't think it's necessary. I th- I think they're, they're mostly like story of the week type things. Yeah. And so you, you could just start with season two. That's fine. But I think you'd miss some pretty, pretty good stories, actually, if you did that. Okay. Mm. All right. It'll be back yeah. on my list. Yeah. But I, I, I just love it, you know. Uh, on face value, it was like, oh, this is a piss take of the next generation, you know, from, from the music to the fact... You know, behind the scenes, next generation people work on it to the to the really flat lighting that they use. Yes, it's, it's like watching next gen, but it's funny, it's sad, and some bits really surprise you. Um, but anyway, I know this is a Doctor Who podcast, so I'll stop talking about the awful. <laughs> Which is a good way of saying, Rob. Let's get to our main topic: Doctor Who season twenty-two, a deep dive. Yes, let's get into it, Dave. So, two points I want to make right from the start. One, one personal and one uh, professional is the wrong word, but, but uh, analytical, if you like. Mm. Uh, the personal is, this is actually, and I didn't really realise this until I was thinking about it, this is the first season of Doctor Who I can actually remember going out properly. There are seasons in the Davo era well, more stories in the day where we were really like Mordred Undead or The Awakening or Planet of Fire. I can remember images. I can remember right. moments as a kid, you know, you know, like the malice in the TARDIS or the, the malice coming out of the church wall and other things. I can remember that, but I couldn't remember actually watching the story. Whereas by season 22, I was just old enough to know that Doctor Who was a show I liked, to, to be growing as a fan at the age of sort of about five or six, probably close to six by the time I got out here. And I remember watching these stories. I can actually remember watching Attack of the Simon. I remember watching Vengeance on Varos. And indeed, I can remember because my dad and I had the Radio Times 20th anniversary magazine Mm -hmm. and the program guide in that only went as far as the Twin Dilemma. So we slotted a piece of paper into it and every week we were going through and adding to the episode guide in, uh, in this magazine. Nice. So, yeah, I actually do have some quite fond memories of this. Before you go on, Dave, I'll just say my piece on how I sort of came to it. Yeah. I watched this piecemeal. I was I was getting into fandom in late 86. Uh, this had already gone out, and I hadn't sort of watched it religiously. I have memories of seeing the Davo era. I have memories of seeing the Colin era. But this, this first season of Colin, I didn't watch properly I, I saw it piecemeal through videos with my local fan group so i was sort of watching stories all in one hit um i wasn't seeing them when they were sort of going out the first time on australian television it wasn't until trial of a time lord aired in australia that i was religiously watching week to week interesting okay very two very different approaches mm. so having made the personal comment the analytical comment i wanted to make is just giving you kind of my view of where this story season sits in terms of the the show and the production team because obviously J&T has been the producer now since season 18 had more hits than misses it's pretty fair to say in the seasons he's done so far oh absolutely you know people when they look back on his whole career now they sort of see the ups and downs but at this point he hadn't had too many downs he'd had quite quite a few successes yeah very very much so for me Eric Saywood had been appointed the script editor towards the end of season 19. Season 20 is literally just 
him sort of getting his feet under the desk and going, right, how do you script out a Doctor Who? Where am I going to get my authors from? How do I pull this together? Uh, we're doing something from every... And just sort of getting a, a season out. Not a bad season, but it's very much just get this season out and I need to get work out what I'm doing. Mm. With season 21, that's where Saywood is able to sit down and go, right, what is the story I want to tell in Doctor Who? What is this tone that I want to have in Doctor Who? What does my season of Doctor Who look like? And that's where you start to get stories like Warriors of the Deep, which, you know, for its production faults, is a, is a very well-written, good story, in my opinion. Mm. You've got Frontios, well-written, exciting adventure. Uh, Resurrection of the Daleks, Planet of Fire, Caves of Bloody Androzani. <laughs> you know, you, you, you get this season that's put together. Now, whether you like the tone or not, I don't think anyone can argue that season 21 doesn't have a very deliberate, structured tone that has been put together really well. And I think I think it is the peak of Eric Saywood, supported by JNT, who, you know, really knows what he's doing at this point and, and is putting it all together. Uh, you then get into season 22, New Doctor and everything. And the real feeling that I got watching this back for the podcast is this sense of a production team going, okay, everybody, we're going to give you what we know you love. Here you go. What, mm. Why? 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 Why don't you, you used to like this? We're, we're doing that trick you like. We're doing yeah. that thing you like. Why? Why? why you, you should be loving this. You always used to. <laughs> That's the real feeling I got here. That everything here, logically, should work. Some of it really does work. Some of it really doesn't. And I think it's to get my Simpsons reference in for the episode, Rob. Yes, please. It's, it's like the start of the uh, Itchy Scratchy and Poochie episode where the um, itchy and scratchy production companies going, kids, you love this stuff. This is this is classic. This is everything that you love. And the kids are going, well, yeah, we've seen it before. Yeah, we, we, no, it's not new anymore. But but you love it. No, like that's kind of how this season feels to me. I think some of it that is valid. Some of it is not valid. And that's perhaps the uh, thematic umbrella under which I'm I'm going to be talking a bit about this season. Yeah, look, all, all very fair comments, Dave. I'm going to jump in and say, you know, with the, the casting of Colin Baker, I'm I'm always in two worlds on Colin Baker. You know, there are times where I really enjoy what he does, and there are other times I think your personality is too big, it's too panto, it's, it's just not f- fitting on television, you know. Mm. <laughs> There's just something about it, and I watch it, and I think... Oh, if Davo was doing that scene, it would be so different and it would probably work. And here it, it, it just feels like panto at times. But you know what? I do like several of the, the stories in this uh, season. Mm-hmm, me too. So although I'm saying, you know, I'm not sure if Colin's right, he's a 50-50 proposition for me and sometimes it's like panto and, you know, there are still stories here that are really good. So I'll, ju- I'll just say that up front as well, so before people think I'm just going to be bashing it uh, as we go along. Yeah, and there were cold moments in this that I sort of saw for the first time in a long time and thought, hey, I get what he's doing there. That, that's that's kind of clever. That's kind of good. Uh, and there, there are other moments where you sit there and go, ooh, you really are new at this, aren't you? Mm. Oh, well, look, I, I kicked off this rewatch by actually watching Twin Dilemma as well, just to get me in the mood, uh, as it were. And, <laughs> and there were bits in that where I thought, I don't remember liking that part before, but actually Colin is being quite fun and likable, and he delivered that line in a really cheeky way, you know, and, and I started seeing a different sort of performance to what I've seen in the past and what I've assumed I've, I've seen in the past, if that makes any sense, 
and I actually saw some new new things from him, and I thought, oh, this isn't as bad as I thought. And of course, we not that long ago, Rob, did our whole run through Jodie Whittaker's first season of The Doctor, and all the way through that, we were saying it takes a year for a Doctor to really hit their strides and really know what their character's like. Okay, there are exceptions. Tom Baker does it from scene one, but mm. Tom Baker's playing Tom Baker. Yes. He, you know, he, he had a cheat there. Um, most Doctors aren't doing that, and it does take them time. And across this season, again, you really do feel Colin just trying different things, and there may be things that he was also going, ooh, I thought that'd be a good idea, but didn't quite work. And, and I think there must have been, because as you watch him go on in Trial of a Time Lord, a lot of those rough edges are smoothed out. So before we go any further, fan rep on this one, fair to say, I actually think has never been a particularly strong reputation. That's very fair. I, I don't think fans have, have really held it up uh, as a shining example of 80s Who. Uh, the fact the show got cancelled, essentially, after this, and, and only brought back at the behest of, you know, fans and and that god-awful single, um, I... Yeah, I think that plays into it as well. People see this as the, the, the season that got Doctor Who axed, basically. Yeah, and although Colin himself has had a bit of a renaissance with a number of fans, many of them say that's off the back of Big Finish rather than a new love for his era. So, it, it, yeah, again, it'll be interesting to see whether some of those fan views and fan rationales for that view do hold up. Mm. Yeah, look, uh, just to go back to Twin Dilemma, and I know that's not part of the stories we're going to be discussing, there, there's a scene in that where I think he, he's going to attack Asmael, and he he runs across the room and jumps over a chair and says, Villain! And it is so cheesy and awful. <laughs> and yes. It's like, and it's like, on big finish, of course this never happens, so his doctor comes across as, you know, much better. But some of the stuff, some of the direction, some of the stuff he's given to do, it is woeful. It, it's not even good children's TV from the mid-80s. It's, it's, oh, it's not good at all. And, and so that's an important jumping-off point, I think, into the actual stories. Because the fan legend or the fan narrative is that you have Caves of Androzani, everybody thinks it's a wonderful story, big exit for the Doctor, for, for the Davison Doctor. You then watch Twin Dilemma and it was like, what just happened? That was terrible. Okay, look, we'll tune in for the first one of the next season to see was that an aberration. They tune in for Attack of the Cybermen. They get more of the same, and the audience just switches off. That's kind of the the fan narrative. If you look at the ratings, it doesn't really hold up. The, the ratings actually don't drop off a cliff at the end of Attack of the Cybermen Part One. Uh, um, there, there's a, a decline and a shift, and and all the usual ratings ups and downs. But yeah, the fan reputation is that Attack of the Cybermen validated the concerns that people had out of Twin Dilemma. I'm going to say right from the bat, I don't think that's fair or correct or justified at all. And I would completely agree with you on that. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, in fact, struggle to understand, having watched this back, having watched it a few times over the last couple of years, why Attack of the Cybermen has that reputation as the one that just killed Colin Stone dead at the start of the season. I think that it is because fans are a little bit aware that the continuity stuff is the weakest aspect and it's their fault that's in there. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of misdirected guilt, perhaps. But back to my opening point, this is a new Doctor being introduced with a classic monster, the Cyberman. Mm-hmm. 
Nicola's doing well. You get Adventures in Space and Time. You get stuff in a quarry. The Cryons are a really weird, different take on an alien. They look kind of cool. Uh, the, the tombs look cool. Okay, they don't look like Tomb of the Cybermen, but who cares? Um, and the TARDIS changes shape. And look, I don't care. When I was six, that was the most exciting thing to happen in my year, uh, with the possible exception of Haley's Comet actually visiting. The TARDIS changed shape, Rob. <laughs> I know. And, and I remember at the time being just outraged at the thought that they'd, they'd do this. I saw it as sacrilege, but now I see it as quite a fun, quirky thing. You know, I, I don't mind that aspect at all. And the fact, yes, they're on Telos and so on. And if I have one criticism of it now as an as an older fan who has seen Tomb of the Cybermen, which, correct me if I'm wrong, did that even exist at the time this this went out? No, it, it was still a lost story, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it lost for another seven years, I think. Yeah, okay. So, like, people hadn't seen that story. Now, looking back as an older fan who's seen Tomb of the Cybermen, I kind of think, oh, gosh, wouldn't it have been nice if they had made the set a bit more retro could they have not got that 60s cyberman logo and put that somewhere you know could they have not done more with the way it looked that would have been amazing but you know putting that aside all all the early stuff and the creeping around the sewers and the return of Lytton and you know i i think it's all quite good and and people do you know almost dumb it down to oh it's just very violent and cybermen have their heads knocked off and they're shot through the mouthpiece and uh Lytton's hands are crushed and all that sort of stuff and i've got to say as a kid i don't know about you dave but as a kid i grew up with sci-fi stories and you know nasty horror movies and stuff and i was quite okay with all of this kind of thing and even as i got a bit older like 12 13 14 15 i would think to myself well you know, if the Cybermen did catch you, you know, they would cybernize you or they would crush your hands. <laughs> this is what would happen. You know, you, you, you wouldn't just sort of say some, some quips and, and, and run away and everything would be okay. That That's more unrealistic than actually someone getting their hands crushed. So I never quite had a problem with this. I don't have a problem with a lot of quotation marks gun doctor who um you know then again we'll discuss mind warp at some stage in the future and i'll i'll have quite a few bad things to say about it so it's not like a blanket sort of thing for me but this season i don't mind the violence so much i don't mind the acid baths i don't mind the cyberman's heads being knocked off it's it's all good to me but that's kind of because that's the kind of kid i was and the kind of stuff i was watching I certainly have some thoughts on the violence in this story and others that I want to come back to as a bit of a bunch later on in our chat. Okay. I certainly agree with all the points you made about this story. I think it is a good adventure. I think the characters are very good characters. Um, even some of the minor ones are very entertaining and well-played characters. I think that's a good thing. I do see the fault in it. It does look a little bit cheaper than Doctor Who has in the past. Mm-hmm. That that's nothing to crucify a story for, but it it does show. I think that there are plot threads that do kind of go nowhere, like the whole trying to capture the alternative time machine. It's kind of like, well, why, and mm. and where did it come from, and what is it, and oh, oh they've just been shot. What well, that okay, like like that doesn't hold together that well. And there are decisions that are made very very clearly to try and satisfy fans that don't come off. And and probably the real sort of epitome of that is the casting of Michael Kilgariff as the Cyber Controller. Mm. JNT clearly expects fans to go, 
oh my god, you went and got the guy from 1968 and you got him to play the same character again. That's so good of you. You really care. Your attention to detail, John, wonderful. Whereas instead they've gone... Um, Who, who's this fat bloke? Yeah, yeah. if he wasn't Michael <laughs> Kilgariff, would you ever have cast him in this role? Yeah. And the answer is no. But it makes you think, doesn't it? Because I just said a moment ago, isn't isn't it great to be back on Telus? But they could have done it retro. So they have this attention to detail to get this specific actor to play this specific role, but they don't make the tombs look more retro and more like Tomb of the Cybermen. I find that just bizarre. Yeah, it's interesting where the messages came through and where they didn't. And I think it's probably a reflection on where JNT had a more direct decision-making process. You know, he signed off casting, whereas perhaps he, he didn't have quite the same control over the designer. And mm. and if if this was a modern Doctor Who, particularly Russell T Davies' era Doctor Who, where they'd have their, you know, their famous tone meetings, mm. that probably would have all been rounded out a bit more. Agree. But, but look, a imperfect, but I think mostly positive, fun adventure to start off with. Are you going to score these out of 10 as we go along? Um, I hadn't been planning to, but I can. Could you? Because I would give this a six and a half out of ten. Hmm. I would go a seven. Okay. Fair. It's it's there's room for improvement, but yeah, it's definitely well and truly above a pass. Yeah, yeah, it is for me too. Like like if I'm calling five a pass, this is this is beyond that, well and truly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Six and a half for me. Seven for you. Let's move on to vengeance on Varos. So I brought a point that I wanted to use. Vengeance on Varos to um, explore. One of the things that really comes through with Eric Saywood's work for the show is he's a very big believer in stories must happen in a world. You can't just arrive on, you know, Planet X and have generic things happening without any sort of context, without any sort of zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. You actually have to create a world and who is in charge of the world and what's the feeling of this world? How does this world work? And, and you see this through his work very, very strongly in season 21. You know, you know exactly how the sea base works, how it fits into the bigger world. You know how Frontios works. You know how that works, how it's controlled, how people interact with each other, their philosophies. Um, Androzani, Major and Minor, same sort of thing. And mm-hmm. you see that again in thinking this season, particularly in Varos, where he said to Philip Martin, go and create a world and then put the story in it. That, I think, is a really good thing. I think it's one of the strengths of Eric Saywood's work. And where normally I would say Andrew Cartmel beats Eric Saywood on a lot of things, on this, I think Eric Saywood is ahead of Andrew Cartmel, who's like, it's going to be in a space refrigeration shop. Why? <laughs> Who cares? Just let's go with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not knocking Cartmel for that. Like, that's a cool, fun way to do storytelling. Like, it's perfectly cool. But Eric Saywood does sit there and go, right, you have a planet. What's the history of this planet? Oh, it's a penal colony that's devolved. Okay. How is it governed? What's mm. their, you know, how's their economy work? How's their justice system work? And so when you've worked out all that and then put a story in, I think it's really effective. And I think that's why this, this really is a contender for the story of the season. And I've got to say, when I was a fan in the late 80s, early 90s, this is the one that was very much seen as, if there's a classic in season 22, it's Varos. Yeah, yeah, agree. Although I've got to say, as a younger viewer, I was not entirely on board with that at the time. 
I kind of found this one a bit boring when I was younger, but as I got older, I thought, oh no, what, my God, what was I thinking? This is actually really, really good. You know, there are bits in it that are a bit cheesy. There are bits in it that I would love to have seen done better, either, you know, in terms of the acting or the direction, but the actual concept, oh my God, this is great. Yeah, that's interesting because I kind of really got it as a six-year-old and the, the subtleties and the complexities certainly passed me over, but I understood this idea of they get to vote and if they vote no, he dies and, oh, they voted yes, so he gets to live a little... Like, like I got all that and I understood it. I didn't really get the whole, you know, it was a send-up of video nasties and mm. everything like that, but it was um, a good adventure and, and I enjoyed the Greek chorus as well. So I, I have fond memories of this and I've, I've always had a fond... No, that's the wrong word. I've always had a a strong regard for Vengeance on Varos. Hmm. Okay, well, that's good. You know, for the majority of my life, I have enjoyed it. We're only talking about when I was quite young. By the time I was in my mid to late teens, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it now, you know. So, so coming back to it, Rob? Look, I... I am, I'm always a bit disappointed by studio-bound stories in the 80s. I always feel like they feel a bit small and, and, and cheap and, and then, you know, that uh, detracts from the story in, in some ways. But this one, coming back to it now, I, I like the concepts. I'll say again, I mentioned the acid bath earlier when I was talking about violence in Who. I don't mind that scene at all. I don't even see the Doctor as necessarily, you know, killing those two guys. I think fine i i think this is tough sci-fi again it's gun sci-fi and i'm okay with gun sci-fi i know a lot of people who recoil from the the thought of it i don't have a problem with it i certainly understand what you're saying about it looking like it's been made in a small 80s studio and there are very obvious moments where it's clear they've got four foot of corridor and that's it yeah i mean you know but even in the mccoy era saying the happiness patrol the happiness patrol feels similar to this to me absolutely it's certainly not robinson crusoe on that Uh, again i think the characters are all very well written um the security chief quillam uh the governor i mean played by martin jarvis very well i don't think all of them are as well acted as they could be and in fact i think the acting is a problem in this story Mm. but we've got to mention as well this story does give us probably the one iconic image or monster out of the colin baker era and arguably out of most of jnt's time as producer in sill yeah look that's that's very fair i mean to, to, to skip ahead in this season i think the design of the borat is is amazing but in terms of what people remember mm. and and it does help that he's brought back again in in the next season as well of course uh, but as a new original character who people remember, who who comes back twice, uh, yeah, hard to argue with that, Dave. Yeah, yeah, and and I did enjoy his performance again. And in fact, I think my enjoyment of Nabil Shaban's performance as Sill does improve as I get older, and I do appreciate some of the um, subtleties in it and some of the quibs and some of the asides. I think it's actually quite a deep deep performance it's a shame about his um black guards we'll just um sort of <laughs> sort of cringe and move on uh, well in some ways it's a shame that it was like oh jnt will cast for diversity and, and what do they do when they they get this um disabled chap in they make him a monster it's like oh no i'm not sure that was what you were meant to do yeah i i yeah i i'm kind of okay with this long work so i don't want to sound like i'm saying that they should be playing a monster but i I think that it's a cool part and it's a leading part and 
you know, I don't have a problem. He's an actor. Actors play monsters sometimes. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm pretty relaxed about that, really. First time, though, in this season where we can explore the criticism that the Doctor doesn't solve the plot. Because what actually solves the plot is Seal gets an email from his boss saying, pay any price. Mm. Um, at which the governor's like, uh, any price you say, huh? What about... 17 units like not 500 <laughs> units it's like oh 17 i'm really gonna push the boat out yeah good on you um, <laughs> but but the doctor like other than reading out the email to sill the doctor doesn't actually solve that problem nor does he bring down a regime overnight the regime is in place when the doctor leaves yeah it is it's very different in 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 comparison to uh Doctor Who stories of the past where he would absolutely brought it down and, you know, be been shaking hands with, you know, the people who are going to take over the planet at the end of the story and all that sort of stuff. So, but I mean, that that's noteworthy and maybe that's commendable in some ways. It's something that if we were to be doing just this story, we could explore in a lot of depth. As a liberal, I do find myself concerned by the idea that the Doctor found a um, dysfunctional but democratic process of leadership and replaced it with a non-democratic, frankly, autocratic form of leadership. Now, we're not supposed to care because Martin Jarvis is meant to be a good guy. There's not a lot in the support in the story that really supports him being a particularly good guy. He's just um, not as nasty as some others. And, um, yeah, I, I don't think the ending quite works if you want to really get analytical about it. But the adventure does. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess at the end, after the Doctor's gone, he does, you know, issue that message that things are going to change. So maybe that's why he's a good guy, because he sort of did that in the end? Um, yes, I will uh, believe that when the governor issues um, writs for genuine popular elections and <laughs> you know, representative democracy and all that sort of thing, and I'm not sure that that's what he's about to do. Right, okay. So, Dave, before we move on to Mark of the Rani, what would you score Vengeance on Varos? I'm going to give it an eight and a half. Oh, that's very high. I think I can only go as high as a seven and a half. Okay, still a step up, though. Oh, yeah, it's it's a step up from Attack, and it's a, it's a reasonable score. You know, I have no problems with the story. I think it's a pretty good one. I do have problems with the next story. Okay. Uh, which is, of course, Mark of the Rani. Yes. I think it's a mess. I think it's boring. And I think it's terribly acted by almost all of the cast. Um, this, probably more than any other story, probably even more than the one that's coming next, epitomises that view of, we're giving you everything that you love. Why don't you enjoy this? We're giving you the master back. We're giving you an historical. We've got this cool time lady with an extra TARDIS. And there's a dinosaur at the end. Why, why don't you love this? And some fans do love this. But I just go, yes, but why are you doing any of it? What's the reason for it? The Rani, okay, she kind of makes sense. Doesn't really end up where Pip and Jane Baker really, really intended her to, but she she works, I guess. Um, I think her performance here is a little bit arch, and you know it's fabulous, but it's it's a little bit like, ooh, okay. Uh, mm-hmm. The Master is just totally redundant and is a bit of a thicky. Uh, most of the supporting cast cannot act or just are completely bemused about what the hell they're doing. Now, I don't know the actor's name, but the, the guy that would go on and be the fa- the father in the big Pride and Prejudice adaption, who's who's the main character in this, he's just walking around the set going, 
I don't know what's going on and I can't hide it. Yeah, look, I know people who absolutely love this story and visually, because they're out on location, as I've said on many episodes of this podcast, Dave, I love it when they're out on location. It just adds that little bit extra. But even that can't save this. It's just a whole bunch of ingredients thrown into a pot but not stirred up and not cooked and then just tipped onto a plate. You know, the ingredients are there. It just hasn't become anything, you know? That's a really good way of putting it, Rob. I really agree with that. Um, to, to pull out, though, from what you said, a couple of the strengths, I agree the location work is pretty good. And when they're on location, the work between Colin and Kate and Anthony Ainley, I think actually does step up a notch. The, their interactions kind of go down a level and therefore are of a better quality. There's a bit more subtlety and a bit more humor in the way they're interacting without it being, hey, here's a gag. And here's a witty retort. It's mm. it's natural wit. It's natural dialogue between them. So that helps as well. This is also, I would argue, Perry's best story. Not necessarily Nick LeBron's best performance, but Perry's best story in that she actually gets a whole plotline to herself that hinges on her and her capability and her knowledge. Yeah, the botanical knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. But that dress she wears, Dave. <laughs> Can we talk about the dress? It's horrible. It, it is. It's, look, look, look. I'm not somebody <laughs> who particularly, as you know, notices or cares much about the costumes the companions wear. But I do notice this one because it is hideous, yes. <laughs> and I know you don't get into the fashion too much, Dave, so that's why I thought I'd throw it in. Yeah, no, no. Th- th- this, is, this, is one, this is one even I just look at and I go, oh, my God, what have they done? Yeah. Um, which, you know, look, at least she's not dressed in a leotard and short shorts again, which is, you know, famously a gay man's idea of what straight men find sexy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yeah, look, at least Perry in this is a lot more than a peril monkey. She does have that moment where the Rani tricks her and everything, and you go, well, okay. She stands up to the master, though. She outwits him. Mm-hmm. She does push the trolley in the wrong direction, which is... <laughs> that scene can go either way depending on my mood. There are moods where I sit there and go, oh, for God's sake, this is terrible. And there, yes. are, mo- there are other ones where he's going, no, Perry, the other way. And I'm just going, this is hilarious. I don't care. <laughs> it really depends on the mood I'm in. Agreed. I, yeah, I, I'm just looking at my notes for this story, Dave. I, I don't particularly like this one at all. I don't really have that much to say on it. It's disappointing, you know, because it's got great location work, as we said. It's got George Stevenson in it. You know, that's great. It's got this new Time Lord we've never met before. There is so much potential and it just doesn't live up to it. It's so disappointing. No, it is, however, and I'll be maybe making note of this when we get to the end of our run. It is a story in the season that perhaps feels least like the rest of the season. There actually isn't any moment of fan-condemned violence in this that needs to be excused. There isn't quite the same level of Perry just being abused, whether it's physically or sexually or emotionally, uh, in it. Um, a lot of those themes and, and, and faults or strengths of other stories just aren't here. It, it is quite an odd little piece in this story. And I wonder if that's maybe why fans do have this one as their favourite, because it is very different from the rest. Yeah, certainly for fans who aren't into the more gun stuff and, and, and the rest of the season. Yeah, 
that could actually be why they like this one because there are many many people i've heard and talked to who do like it it's just not my cup of tea at all no and look that's why i'm giving it a four out of ten if i'm saying five's a pass mark this is not way way below that but i have to say it is just below a pass i'm gonna be a little kinder and give it a pass i'll say five so rob yes we're giving you the second doctor and jamie and sontarans <laughs> and location filming overseas why aren't you loving this actually i'm kind of do love this one do you really uh love is probably too strong a word i enjoy this one and i appreciate it for what it is it is very easy to pick apart Mm -hmm. but it has got the second doctor and jamie it's got that lovely black and white fade up to color opening it's got jacqueline pierce in it come on Mm -hmm. it's got location filming and okay it's not the best location filming in fact of the four i think they did in the classic series this is by far the weakest of them i mean this isn't city of death this isn't amsterdam which look for all the faults in arc of infinity amsterdam was well used my god it's certainly not lanzarote which was just fantastic oh yeah that looks like a movie yeah but it is still overseas location filming we're not filming in a quarry we're not filming in the home shires of london or of, of, of the UK, it looks different, and that's a good thing. The characters, I think, are good. The actors, I think, are good. It doesn't hold quite as well together as it should. No. And maybe, maybe that's where I'll hand over to you, because you seem to be a little bit more down on this than I am. Look, a- a- again, this one, I feel, and it's genuinely, to me, too long. I think it does go on for too long. But what I will say is I came to this, this was one of the ones, because I was watching this season piecemeal, I actually read the novel of this, I'm pretty sure, before I actually saw the episode. The one Robert Holmes target novel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was the 100th Doctor Who novel. Did, it didn't was. did have that on the cover? It yes. did, yes, yeah. That's, that's the one. And so, like a lot of Target novels, I think I come to the story forgiving a lot of things because I read the Target novel and that told the story in a way that I could imagine in my head and in my head it was quite a, 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 a wonderful thing. Uh, but then you actually see it on the screen and it's like, oh no. I mean, even the fact they've got Patrick Troughton with grey hair... As, as a young fan, even as an old fan now, I think, why? When you brought him back in Five Doctors, you let him have the black hair. Look, I know he's becoming an older man, but gosh, he just looks so unlike his Doctor was. Now, and I believe that was Troughton's insistence, though. Is that right? I think so. He, You're not dyeing my hair. I think so. And, and look, maybe... I can applaud that on some levels. He doesn't want to be vain. He wants to, you know, sort of age a bit. But it just doesn't match yeah. what, we, what we know of where this doctor is at. Yeah, I hear and, and why does Jamie have that ridiculous... What do they call that thing where the, it connects to the kilt and goes up over the shoulder? And, like, he never wore that on TV. And you put him in this really hot environment wearing his warmest costume yet. <laughs> I, I don't get that at all. I used to... I used to sit there as a younger fan thinking, this is all silly. His hair should be black. Jamie should be wearing just a, a T-shirt or a jumper or something, not this huge, heavy thing. Gosh. <laughs> They're the things I picked up on, Dave. Yeah, having said that, Rob, what's what's your overall view of this one? How does it make you feel? Uh, I think it's missed opportunities because I don't mind Sontarans at all. And and it's, it's funny. Sontarans are like Cybermen to me, you know, 
I, the more stories of theirs I watch, the, the, the less I like the stories, but I'm into the, the race. Uh, it's the same as Cybermen. The more Cybermen stories I watch, I just, I just get disappointed, but I actually like Cybermen very much. Here, the Sontarans are on the downward slope. You know, I think their first couple of outings with Tom Baker are very good. Their third outing with Tom Baker, I think they're going downhill. They're really going downhill here. And then by the time we get to the modern era and they're just children in suits, I'm just (laughs) so disappointed with them. So on one hand, it excites me that there are Sontarans running about. And I I think Shockeye and and Chassini are great, interesting characters as well. But they just... There's just something about it that just doesn't come off for me, and and it's disappointing. And I, I I wanted to to love this as a kid, and I did love the novel, but when I saw the story, I just I thought, no, nah, it just doesn't work for me somehow. So I mostly like the Sontarans in this. I do like the characters. I like the dialogue between them. I like the way they interact with the other characters. I, I love that shot where you first see them, where you see the ships in space, and before the computer announcement even says what they are as a fan if you've seen the time warrior or, or Sontaran expedition you're like, i know what that is there's a there's Sontarans. Mm-hmm. and then the moment where you just get the the three-fingered hand with the wand that just comes up into frame to to cover the doctor yeah i think that's all really well done they are ridiculously too tall it is incredibly clear that the masks have not been stapled to the necks of the costume and you can mm. actually see the edge of the mask a couple of times when Stike bends over and, and you know you can see down his neck that, that that's terribly done but overall I really quite like them and I think Robert Holmes has given them a very similar sense of humour to what you do get from Lynx in the Time Warrior I actually think it is a return to form in that sense they just look wrong Okay, yeah, maybe it's the visuals that really takes me out of it because when it comes to Sontaran stories, if you're drawing it as a graph, it just goes down, you know, from the Time yeah. Warrior onwards. And and I wish it wasn't that way because I, I do quite enjoy them as, as a race. I'm fascinated by them. I think they're really interesting. Mm, very. I, I I just can't get behind them in this. Yeah, and that, look, that that's fair enough. Uh, as I say, I enjoy the other characters. Shasini's really cool. Uh, I like Dastari and the way that he sort of, you know, he's allowed to reform as a character. But if I could pull on a bit of a thematic comment here, mm-hmm. I, I said when we were talking about Attack Rob that I wanted to talk about the violence in a bit of a block. And I think here's the time to do it because I've really been thinking about this as I've thought about this episode. Mm-hmm. As we go through, you're absolutely right in everything that you've said and, and, and other fans have said before about attack, well, the Doctor does what he has to do to get out of the situation. The acid bath in Varos, the Doctor doesn't push them in, da-da-da-da-da. The violence in this one, yes, the Doctor's defending himself against Shokai with only what he has. He's, he's innovating the way the Doctor does, etc., etc., etc. Every one of the violent moments in this season, and, and there's others to come, I agree, are utterly excusable. However, if this was a police investigation you would be saying that there is a pattern of behaviour whereby, <laughs> whereby for every allegation, okay, you've got an alibi or an excuse or a justification for every one of them, but the fact that there is this pattern of excuses needed suggests to me that actually something is wrong. And I can't think of another season where we have to find these excuses again and again and again. And so I do think that actually... Yes, individually, you can excuse every instance of violence in season 22. But the fact that we have to so frequently, 
I think actually is a problem. Okay. I'm I'm going to turn this towards the current series that we've just watched with Jodie Whittaker. And sure. I don't want this to be a long conversation. Yeah. But in the Jodie Whittaker series, you know, we, we've not got a lot of violence. We've not got a lot of strong enemies. Not a lot of deaths in most of the stories. Mm. And we've looked at those and gone, well, God, that's boring. You know, is this entirely realistic? Shouldn't the Doctor have stronger, you know, uh, adversaries? Isn't it more exciting when a Dalek appears and actually mows down tons of people because that's what Daleks do? And I think, well, here we have the Doctor in a tough universe, having to deal with people who do want to kill him or, you know, do him, do him harm for some reason. And I think... Where's the balance? You know, if there are a few more stories in this season, like Mark of the Rani, would that have balanced things out a bit? But when we've just looked at Mark of the Rani, we've said this is quite different to everything else and we don't like it. Uh. So so let me say that the, the balance perhaps is that you can have the violence without the Doctor being continually the perpetrator. And if you look at the McCoy era, which is further into the 80s than this is, and, and, and let me say as an aside, I totally get this is a product of the 80s. Like, I get mm. where this is coming from. It's not a, a, a complicated concept. Like, where did this violence come from? It came from the 80s. Everything else on television. But the McCoy era, which is further into that, gets away with it because it gives the violence to Ace. The Doctor doesn't blow up a Dalek with an anti-tank rocket. Ace does. Ace carries around uh, Nitro 9. She's the one that's taking out Cybermen with gold coins. Okay, it's a bit silly, but, you know, you know, she's yeah. the one doing that. Whereas here, it's the Doctor that's taking life. It's the Doctor that's being violent, whilst the female companion is just being abused left, right, and centre. Once again here, she's just captured and, you know, almost chopped up by Shasini on many, many occasions. She's, she's just here to be just treated badly. And I think that's the difference between the two eras. Yeah. And, and is it because they're trying to do something different with the Doctor? You know, you think of Peter Davison being sweet, you know, sweet, a feet, uh, and, and all of this. Are they just trying to make him tougher by blowing away Cybermen in the first story oh, or, you know, absolutely. wrestling with people and they fall into acid baths and things? They're just trying to make him more of a not so much an action hero, but just a bit tougher somehow. Absolutely. You, you can't have this pattern of behaviour that I'm claiming exists and not have it having been a very deliberate tonal mm. decision by the production team. Now, there are people out there that might say, and I don't, you know, I, I totally understand, that it is a perfectly good and welcome decision to make. I, I know fans that after the watching the Davis Nero were like, yes, this is cool. More of this, please. That's fine. It's a perfectly valid opinion to have. I'm just saying that it really does stand out in the history of Doctor Who, not just from what came before, but from what would come afterwards as well. Yeah, I mean, roll back to the Tom Baker era. He's certainly not afraid to get into fights and wrestles with people or, or shoot guns either. But this seems to be taking that and amping it up a bit more than maybe is healthy. Yes, it's it's being more direct about it and it's being more frequent about it. And I agree, you can excuse every instance and justify and validate every instance in story terms and in tonal terms and everything. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying you can't pretend, though, that there isn't a pattern yeah. that is far more frequent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, look, the, the pattern is there. And when it comes to, and I guess we've just got to mention it briefly, at least the Doctor killing uh, Shock Eye with the cyanide. 
Shockeye has wounded him. Shockeye is chasing him. That I remember when I was younger watching that, I felt quite scared by that scene. You know, it, it, it was genuinely worrying. You know, if, if someone chases you with a knife and they've already wounded mm. you, that, 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 that's kind of a scary thing. That's very visceral. That's, that's not just being shot. That's a, that's a more personal sort of thing, you know, someone wanting to knife you. Let, let me ask you, Rob, if Shockeye had got a lot more makeup on, green hair, or was a man in a rubber suit or something like that, would we blink twice at the doctor killing him with cyanide? Or is it because he's basically a human with big warts? Look, I think we would take it a bit better if he looked more alien, and that maybe says something about us. Yeah, maybe, maybe, but certainly... Us that, as uh, people, I mean, not just you and me. Yeah, yeah, is. yeah. No, no, I, 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 exactly, and that's kind of the point I was, was, was getting towards. That, yeah, if the Doctor gasses Tontarans or Silurians or Terraleptals, well, of course he should, because they're the monsters. They're guys in rubber suits. Um, a guy in just a rubber wart, ooh, that's a little bit close to the knuckle. He's basically a person. Now, he's clearly not. Like, Shockeye is clearly an alien in every way, shape, and form. Culturally, physically, he's clearly not a human. But he looks like one, and that doesn't sit right with us, I think. that That is a problem. Yeah, agreed. Should we give this a score, Dave, before we move on? Go ahead, Rob. It's a tough one, but I'm going to come in at 6 out of 10. I'm going to come in at 7 on par with Attack of the Cybermen. Okay, very fair. Next up, Time Lash. And this is one that you got me to watch. I can't think of the exact episode. It's probably within the last dozen maybe last half a dozen monthly episodes, you said, you challenged me to watch Time Lash and see what I thought of it because I hadn't seen it for a while. And I said at the time, I was actually surprised by it. I thought it was better than I remembered. Still not a great, great story, but I particularly liked the way it took a historical figure and brought him in. And, you know, conceptually, I thought it was good. It's not up there with Vengeance on Varos by any means, but it doesn't quite deserve the kicking it gets from fans. That's my opening gambit on this one. I, I'm glad you said that, Rob, because I'm of a very similar opinion. Now, I'll just say right at the top of this discussion about Time Lash, Paul Darrow, love him. He is the man, and I will, <laughs> I will watch him do anything. And, and, and frankly, him just having a huge amount of fun at the expense of Colin Baker in this, I can watch that any day of the week. I'll just put that front and centre of the conversation. Mm. Beyond that, Yes. I think this is a story really of two halves. Yeah. Part one, I actually think is pretty good. It, it, its production values aren't great, although it's got some nice touches like uh, the android and that sort of thing. And later when we see the Borad, his makeup. Um, but this is, this is another example of a world that kind of works. Like we know how the power structure on this works. We know how oppressed they are. We know how the systems work. And, you know, there are references to schools and hospitals and, and there's, there's actually a society out there beyond just the three rooms that we see, which is that Eric Saywood trademark that I spoke about. Mm-hmm. That's there. Uh, there are some good performances. There are some terrible ones. The Doctor sort of gets involved about halfway through. So this is another one where the Doctor is less involved. But I quite like part one of this story. I think it works. I think it's fun. Part two, I agree, does fall down. There's some couple of really cool ideas they do have fun with time i think the best thing about this is the, the the stuff they do with the the time crystals and all the rest of that and everything i think that's quite clever the borat is good but the moment when the script said that they go inside the time lash to find all these crystals 
someone should have just said, frankly, Eric Saywood should have said the script editor, we can't afford that. Let's talk about what else we could do instead. That scene should not be in there. Perry being menaced, basically a a convoluted plan that, that is meant to end in the forced rape and impregnation of Perry. I mean, that, mm. that is the Borrowed's plan. The Borrowed's plan is to change her to something he finds attractive so he can rape her and get her pregnant. Like, that, yep. that is the bad guy's plan. That is a problem. Um, and that is a particular problem for this companion because it happens all the time. And then you get, you know, all the stuff with the second ending where the second Borrowed comes out and just sort of gets talked off the edge of a cliff. Uh, yep. You get all of that extra padding stuff which, you know, it's not a bad scene, but it stops the episode stone cold. Uh, then the Doctor defeats the Bandrel's missile with a, I'll explain later. That was the big one for me. That's still the sticking point for me. Yeah. that That is cheap. That is terrible. Yeah, that is as cheap as the Bandrel prop. <laughs> Even cheaper, I think, Dave. Yeah. But something that's not cheap is the Borad. That makeup, I'm going to say, is easily the best oh, now I think of the destroyer as well it's one of the top two makeup jobs prosthetics of the 80s era of Doctor Who I think it's extraordinary and it's a shame it's wasted in this story oh it is so good it is one of those memories that has sat with me since I first saw it as a six-year-old and in fact I can remember when we got the target novel as a family and the cover with the picture of the the Borad and and me spending time sitting there like really pulling apart the human face and the Morox face and just how the eyes are different levels and, and the nose starts at one level and, and merges down mm-hmm. to another level and the mouth starts at one level and it merges and contorts into a Morox. Uh, uh, yeah, really, really cleverly done. Really, really good. There, there is some good stuff in here. There are some good performances in here. There's some fun performances in here. It ends up in a really bad place though and it's just a mess by the end of it yeah yeah look i i think i've said all i want to say on this should we score sure i'm gonna go for a six uh it is a pass there's enough in this for me to call it a pass but it is a notch or two or three below the other stories so far okay i'm sitting at five and a half yeah okay we haven't been two two out of sync with each other on this no that's interesting isn't it Mm, no, it's good. Uh, which, brings which brings us, us to Revelation. Yes, which I'm very excited to talk about because <laughs> I'll just go out here and say it is my favourite story of the season. Well, why don't you kick us off, Rob, with um your reasons why? Dave, this was another one. This was the second one this season when I saw it as a younger person that I didn't quite get what was going on. I found it very weird. I thought it was very unlike all the other Dalek stories I'd seen where Daleks just got around and shot everybody and, you know, <laughs> they were very simple, linear stories. I I used to look at the character of the DJ and think, oh, this is just embarrassing. You know, I was a Young Ones fan, so I knew who Alexi Sale was and I just felt, no, Alexi Sale can't be in Doctor Who and why is this so weird? Oh, ah, I really didn't like this story as a younger person. But as I got older, I saw it as just so quirky and weird and different. And we talk about Mark of the Rani being different to the other stories this season. I think this story is is different too. Sure, it's got the violence and such, but just the way it is written, I think is is wonderful. And you know, people people bag Eric Sayward, but you you pull out Earthshock and you pull out this, and you think, well, 
he can write quite well. And I know you particularly like the visitation too. So it's, <laughs> it's interesting how much he gets bagged, even though he's written some, some good stuff for the show. Yeah, and this yeah. is, this is, I think his best story for the show. I don't think you'd agree with that, but I think it's his best. No, I wouldn't agree with that. I'll say up front, I have a healthy and over the years growing respect for Revelation of the Daleks. Mm. I think it's a good piece of television. I personally don't enjoy it. Okay. So when I watch it at just that most gut, heart, you know, level, am I enjoying this? The answer is generally no. Can I respect some of the performances? Absolutely. Can I respect the writing and what Sayward's writing? Very, very much so. And again, as a kid, went totally over my head. The older I get this one, I totally, as you say, appreciate what he's doing. I appreciate the reference to Evelyn Waugh's work. I get all of that. Love it. Mm. But I'm not enjoying it. I like some of the set pieces. I've really learned to enjoy Alexi Sales, the DJ. Again, used to think it was really stupid, but now I'm like, this is actually really clever. And the way that he's he's playing it is actually really clever as well. And when you can make me feel for Alexi Sale being exterminated, you know, job done. Well done. I, I, I give him points for that. I think Kara is a great character, played really well. I love her offsider. What was his name? Uh, was it Vogel? Vogel, yes. I love Vogel. I, I love the way they interact. I love the moment where he's exterminated and before he collapses, he just has this one moment where he just turns to her and just, just wants to take in her presence just for one more moment before he falls over and dies. I think yeah. there's, yeah, there's, 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 there's stuff I like in here. I, lo- I respect the direction. Um, I respect the way that the production's been done and J&T has clearly learned a long time coming lesson and not made the last story of the season the cheapy he's made time lash the cheapy so revelation of the daleks can be a big event thing and that's a really good decision well done jnt lots and lots i respect here i'll just jump in and say what about say what's clearly doing the Holmesian double act with you know jobel and tassim beaker and orsini and bostock you know he's got everyone paired off I, I think it's it's just great. No, you see, they just don't work for me. I get what he's really? doing. I get what he's doing with Joe Bell and Tassin Beaker, but in the end, they're just two unpleasant characters I don't much care about, and I'm kind of relieved when they both get killed. It's kind of like <laughs> watching the recent remake of A Star Is Born. They're just such horrible people that when eventually bad things happen to them, I just think they deserve it. I don't care. <laughs> so... You know, I, I, and, and, and frankly, it's the same with Ostini and Bostock. I mean, they're not nice people. They're, they're hired assassins. They're hired killers. Yeah, Ostini gets a couple of cool lines and William Gorn plays it really well. And, and he's a good get for the series. But do I care about them? No. Do I like them? Definitely not. And am I enjoying watching them go and be nasty to each other and other people? Not really. Wow, that... That is interesting. Do you find there are many Doctor Who stories like that where, or is this a rare one where you can see what they're doing and you respect so much about it, like you've just been saying, and you like this and you like that, but you actually don't like watching it? Are there many stories like that for you, or does this stand out? This really stands out in that respect. It really, really does. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, just because the way you describe that, then I, I didn't think I'd heard you describe a Doctor Who like that before. No, no. It, it really, this this stands in a very strange part of e-space for me like this this just 
it doesn't even fit into my Doctor Who universe. It's like knocking on the outside saying, can I come in? And going, no, 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 you're weird. Go away. <laughs> Huge respect for it. As I say, there's a lot I, there's a lot I, I get. Totally get. I'm just at a deep level. I'm, I'm not enjoying watching it. Okay. Well, before we score it, I just want to say I love the Imperial Dalek uh, color scheme as well, which was introduced here. I just think it's gorgeous. Uh, yeah, look, that is really good. The location filming is also really good. Uh, can we have a quick conversation, though? And this is probably the last of the thematic conversations that I had down to have, mm-hmm. which is I've spoken a bit about other stories where the Doctor doesn't do a lot to solve the plot. In this one, he literally does nothing. Uh, the Doctor doesn't even arrive at Tranquil Repose until early in the second half of the story. He's still in the gardens by the end of part one um, of, of, of a two-parter. And what is it that resolves the situation at Tranquil Repose? It's Tarkus and Lilt get on the Skype and, you know, go get the uh, Black Daleks to come and take away Davros. Like, that's what resolves the problem. It's it's Orsini that blows up Davros's base and, and helps to take out Davros. And it's the Black Daleks that come and remove Davros and take everything away. If the Doctor hadn't turned up in this story, the only thing that would probably be different is the DJ probably wouldn't have been killed. <laughs> I, I Look, I know you're right on this. It's it's funny, though, isn't it? And do we think this is because Eric Sayward just isn't enjoying writing for Colin? Or he, he's just got his own story in mind and he's just... He just doesn't care that he's writing the Doctor out of it, essentially. I certainly don't think that it's him deliberately sitting down going, I'm going to write a story without Colin. Stuff him. I just think that he gets into this story and he's enjoying writing his characters so much that he's like, okay, I should probably get to the Doctor now. Um, The Doctor and Perry walk through the wood some more. Right, back to my characters. Um, The Doctor (laughs) and Perry go over the wall. Right, back to my characters. Like, I just think he's enjoying the other stuff so much. He, He doesn't bother with the doctor i think you're right and and that is a fault of the season i mean the show is called doctor who and you can absolutely have stories where the doctor is tangential to the plot and that's a point or as in the the the, the modern series missing for an episode and let the companions have it and in fact as we said one of the reasons why mark of the rani does work is the doctor actually is removed from some of it and Perry does step up and take control of that story. And that, that is the strongest part of Mark of the Rani, in my view. And, mm-hmm. and, and if there'd been more for Perry to do, that would have been good. But, but we're removing the Doctor and removing Perry. And yeah. it's, it's hard. How does Colin really make his mark in his opening season if, at the end of the day, the Doctor doesn't solve the problem? Yeah, very fair point. It's a point we raised about Jodie Whittaker a couple of times. Yeah, exactly right. If you had to score it, though, Dave, I'm fascinated to know what you'll give it. I'm going to give it a four. Actually, no, oh I'm going to give it. God. I'm going to give it a four point nine nine. Oh, that's harsh. Which, okay. Which is simply to say, I respect the work that it's done, but if I'm judging, as I say, if I'm calling five my pass mark, I cannot get it over that line. Call it a pass because I don't enjoy it. So I'll give it all the respect right up to the pass. I'll give it a four point nine nine. But it just doesn't work for me, sorry. But but what are you going to give it, given it's your favourite? Eight out of ten for me, just pipping Vengeance on Varos to be best yeah. of the season. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is the one where we diverge. Everything else was very close. Yeah, and, and I'm not shocked by that as well. And it's been really interesting to hear your views on this and, and where we do diverge, because we agree on a lot. Yeah, 
we just don't agree on the sum of the parts. No. But I think you are looking forward to the hardback of this coming out, aren't you? I, I am. I'm, I'm really interested to see what Eric Sayward does with this. And I think as a novel, it's going to be a really cool book. I'm wondering if he'll expand it in some way. Will, will he give the Doctor more to do? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I'm really genuinely interested to find out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really am. Because he's had decades of feedback now on it. Or will he just be stubborn and just do a very um, linear, straight down the line, this is what happened on TV? Given his previous work in books like Slip Back and The Twin Dilemma, I don't think that'll be his instinct. I think he'll really go into strange and interesting places with both his books. Oh, that excites me. That Mm. really excites me. So, Rob, what have you learned from this dive into season 22? This is the first time I've looked at it as a whole and and watched many stories from it um, in the same week uh, for a long, long time. And... Do you know, I think it's better than I have previously regarded it. At the same time, though, I see the faults and I see why the show was cancelled and then it was eventually just rested for 18 months. But I think they didn't learn any lessons there because they didn't actually change anything when it came back. So that was a huge missed opportunity. I actually think it was right to rest the show at the end of this they they had gone down some some rabbit holes and hadn't quite got it right it was time to step back have a rest but then come back with something different get colin in a new outfit get a new script editor try something different and i think colin could have really you know had a great second season and then a wonderful third season he might have left then he might have continued on who knows what could have been Uh, if they had actually shaken things up. So although I like this better than I remember, and although I think there are some great stories in it, I think it was right to be rested. I just don't think they learned their lesson and and rested it correctly. What fascinated me going through this is wondering why it is that season 12 works so well, is so well regarded, rightfully well regarded, Mm. and this isn't, because it's doing the same tricks. Yes, it's, it is. It's the same selection of monsters. It's almost exactly the same selection of monsters. Dalek, Santaran, Cyberman, just add the master. Uh, it's giving you Patrick Troughton back. It's giving you good location filming. It's doing a lot of things kind of that we expect the first season of A New Doctor to do. And as I say, it just feels as though it's a trick that's been used once too many times. And, you know, it's it's like that comedian who has a routine and they keep doing it for three, four, five years and everybody loves it. And at some point people are going, eh, look, it's good, but I've mm. seen it before. And and I just think this one doesn't quite work. And it doesn't quite work, I think, because of a bit of the tone that goes over the top. It doesn't quite work because Nicola is just not working, or sorry, her character is mm. not well treated. And, and Nicola is a very good actress, but she's not such a good actress that she can overcome the sheer dirt that is being fed up to Perry in this season. Yeah. And look, throw on top of that, Colin Baker in that outfit with his big personality, it, it just, it's maddening because I do see how it can work and I do see moments I really like. But do you know, it's just, I can't take my eyes off him when he's in that coat, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. Do you know, not once in during my week rewatch, did I notice the coat or care? Is that right? I, I I just don't care. As I've said before, I get more annoyed about how bland Davison's costume is 
than how big Colin's costume is. What about his his persona though? How it's really big. He should be on a stage, you know, not a little television set. Uh, there are moments when it works really, really well, and it's really funny, or it's really encouraging, or it's really interesting. And there are moments where it's cringeworthily bad. I think that we see far, far less of that cringeworthy stuff in Trial of a Time Lord, and I think had he had a third season, he would have absolutely smashed it. Absolutely smashed it. In the way that Davo absolutely smashed it in his third series. Not that Davo was bad in the first or the second, but I think most fans agree, Davo really nails it in his third season, and it's just going. Even Tom Baker, who's classic Tom from season 12, by the time you get to season 14, mm. he is at another level as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pertwee is at another level by his third season as well. Like, doctors do improve over time. Capaldi's third season, I'd wager, Capaldi, was his best. yeah. Yeah, Capaldi's, absolutely. Doctors do improve over time. There is a clear trajectory of improvement in Colin's performance as he does try things and learn from what works and what doesn't work. It gets better, and that's that's all I can say. That The problem is that when you're being loud your mistakes do stand out. Mm, exactly. Very much so. But I was pleasantly surprised by this season. You know, I, I found a lot to respect in Revelation. I enjoyed Attack more than I thought I was going to. I enjoyed The Two Doctors more than I thought I was going to. Um, mm. Mark the Rani went further down, in my opinion. Uh, Varos, I did see some of the faults that maybe I'd... Um, maybe time had erased or time had diminished... Mm-hmm. But there is a lot to like in this season. There's also a lot that doesn't work, and I think that's that's the one-line summary. All right. Did it deserve to be axed at the end of the season? Yes, I think it did, because mm. it is looking like it's out of ideas, and it's just doing Doctor Who for the sake of doing Doctor Who. And even the change to the 45-minute format, which we haven't touched upon, partly because I think it went out here in... 25 minute part mm. uh, that really isn't made use of very well really until Revelation and it's certainly with Attack of the Cybermen you can clearly see that it's a four part story like you can absolutely nail the moment that episode one was meant to end with a big reveal of the Cyber Leader and yes. then you know, like, <laughs> like, like, like the, 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 the tone and the tempo of that story is a four parter that just happens to be a two parter and, and it takes them a full season to get used to that. And and just as they're getting used to that, they go back to 25 minutes. <laughs> it's a very odd era for Doctor Who, that's for sure. So, look, may, maybe I'll rephrase. Would I axe Doctor Who now with the intention of, you know, really being axed? Uh, okay, no. Do I think that it utterly, utterly deserved a... Right, before we sign off and give you another series, go away, stop what you're doing... Think about what you're doing, think about why you're doing it, and what you want to do with your next season, and then we'll give you another go. Um, mm. As you said earlier, though, that didn't happen, but that's a story for another day. It certainly is. <laughs> that was a lot of fun, Dave. I really enjoyed talking about season 22. I did as well. I did as well. I'm really pleased the listeners nominated that. I'll be honest, this would not have been close to my top five list if we'd been working it out between us. And so having that that outside influence from the listeners throwing this at us, um, really good surprise. And yeah, really pleased we did it. I, I would not have done this had we not been suggested to us. Yeah, I think I would have ended up somewhere in the Pertwee era, probably. Yeah, probably, yeah. Hmm. 
Anyway, before we wrap up, we have letters, listener emails. And these have actually been edited for time reasons. I've kept in all the, the central themes that people want to talk about. But gosh, people, you send us some long, long emails at times. And just for the sake of brevity, I've edited these down. Dave, shall we tic-tac back and forth on these? Absolutely. Do you want to get us started, Rob? I will. Steve Panozzo. Hello, Steve. Good mate on Facebook for me. One of Australia's leading cartoonists. Hey, Rob, what a cracking installment of the Doctor Who show. Thanks for all the effort you two clearly go to in producing the podcast. For my money, please keep to the middle ground. There is clearly a lunatic fringe out there mouthing off on a continual basis about what they perceive Doctor Who should be as there is seemingly with most science fiction properties, without much reference to logic or reality. For the next podcast, I'd like to see Season 11. See, Steve thought of Season 11 here uh, as being worthy of reappraisal for a Mm. number of reasons. It was the first time I had ever watched Doctor Who in 1976. I was in my 12th year and in Year 6 at school. My friend at school, Andrew McCann, was a big fan and he told me about it. The first episode introduced me to John Pertwee's dashing and heroic Doctor, the ever-so-hot Sarah Jane Smith, and the most amazing monster Lynx the Sontaran. I was hooked. There is so much in Pertwee's final series as the Doctor that meets the eye that I believe it's due for an appraisal. Well, thank you very much, Steve. We'll definitely try to keep doing what we do. Yeah, Pertwee's final season would have been good to do too. I think that is on our shortlist for some time in the future, yes. Mm. We have an email from Ben PM from Sunny WA. He signs off. Yes. G'day, Rob and Dave. My suggestion for your next podcast is to delve into season 22. There we go. I hope you enjoyed it, Ben. I recently rewatched it. While I understand the show was in turmoil around this era with BBC management not being supportive, I'm surprised at how hated it is amongst some fans. The fans I know, anyway. Colin Baker's performance is a big departure from the previous five Doctors, but I really liked it and feel that his run was cut undeservedly short. On another note, the Terrence Dix episode was excellent. The importance of his role in Doctor Who could not be overstated. Cheers, Ben PM from sunny Western Australia. Uh, Look, I hope you enjoyed our chat about season 22 and um, we'll see whether you agreed with our thoughts on Colin Baker's performance. Yeah, drop us a line. Uh, William McCann, the third, has written to us again, Dave. He says, hello again. I very much enjoyed all the information you shared about Terence Dix in your last episode. I've always admired his contribution to the Hooniverse, so much so that at the conclusion of a US convention I attended in 2016, when asked for the names of Doctor Who personalities I'd like to meet at a future con, Terence was first on my list, followed by Philip Hinchcliffe and William Russell. That's a really cool list, I just want to interrupt and say. That's a really cool list. Yeah, and I, I, I would say William Russell's just been over at uh, Galley, Galley 1. Has he really? Yeah, yeah, oh. I saw a picture of him, and, uh, oh, who was he sitting next to? He was sitting next to Carol Ann Ford, yeah, oh. the two of them on a couch, yeah. Oh, lovely. Mm. Anyway, William goes on. <laughs> Season 16, that would be my deep dive series uh, selection in response to your request made of listeners at the conclusion of the last episode. Bit of an odd choice, I'll admit, given that Sarah Jane Smith is my favourite companion and that the Sixth Doctor is my Doctor and with all the whining and fandom against series arcs, but somehow the key to time exists outside normal rules. 
well, William, the fact we did a six Doctor st- uh, season tonight, you might enjoy that anyway. Um, each episode in Key to Time is able to stand on its own, featuring well-rounded supporting casts with memorable performances turned in by many, along with Tom Baker in full stride as the Doctor. These are but a few reasons why the Key to Time is among my favourites. Happy travels from William. Uh, look, that's definitely one I would love to do. Uh, the problem, and I'll just let you know a secret here, William, is it would be what I would call a gushing episode, which is just <laughs> just me going, episode story number one, that was great. Story number two, that was great too. Story number three, that was even better. Like, <laughs> I don't know that's always the most interesting form of discussion, but uh, I would love to chat about the key to time one day. Yes, and I'd be here saying, yes, and this one has Mary Tam in it. Oh, Mary Tam's in this next one too. Oh, Mary Tam's in this next one. Oh, Mary Tam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Finally, an email from Martin Gardner. Hello, hope you're all well. Um, not too bad, although the voice is a little strained, I must admit. You may have noticed. In terms of a season to look at in depth, why don't you just look at season 19, seeing as you're currently working your way through the Blu-ray anyway? Is Time Flight really as bad as all that? Is there actually a plot in Earthshock? Is Kinder a multi-layered philosophical masterpiece, or is it as flimsy as a giant pantomime snake? Cheers, and have a nice day. <laughs> Another good suggestion there, Martin. I'm sure we'll get to it sometime. I, I would love to do a Davo series, I've got to say, but uh, yeah, it was just pipped this time by a Colin series. Yeah. So look, that's just a summary of some of the suggestions we had. Uh, lots of seasons people are interested in us having deep dives into. I, I enjoy having these conversations, so I'm sure there'll be a couple more across 2019. Oh, yeah. we And as I said at the start, we got a bunch of tweets on this as well. I'm, I'm sure sometime uh, co-host Mike Solko is disappointed we didn't do season 24, for example. Yeah, oh, there'll be lots of them, but hopefully there you enjoyed will. season 22. Hmm. <laughs> now, we need to mention, for those who haven't noticed, between this and our last monthly episode, we did do a special Alternate Galaxies chat about Press Gang. Yes, well, I didn't, I've got to say, Dave. <laughs> Uh, no, that's right. You you weren't there, were you, Rob? I, I I love Press Gang, and I was interested in doing it, but I just wasn't there on the day of recording. So uh, I'm not on that episode, but a lot of you know fantastic people are. Yes, we had friends from Flight Through Entirety and New to Who join us for that conversation. Well, join me for that conversation, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so if you're interested in Press Gang, and we just go through and chat about a representative episode from each season, uh, check out our discussion. Yeah, I particularly like the way you would talk about the way Moffat was writing those stories and how he was still pulling the same tricks in Doctor Who. And, you know, just bringing it back to Doctor Who. So even if maybe you haven't seen Press Gang, but you want to hear about a TV show that Moffat wrote that does sort of use some of the same tricks as Doctor Who, do give it a listen. Yeah, absolutely. Press Gang was the first thing that Moffat wrote for television, and we very much look at the show through the prism of can you see proto-Moffat developing as this goes on and and you absolutely can Mm, absolutely what are we going to do next month rob next month dave i've had a very strange thought and i I think you're going to go with it but uh, (laughs) (laughs) let me just throw it out here for all the listeners to hear i want to do sophomore stories basically i want to look at the second story of each doctor's career doctors one through to 13 i want to look at story number two not their first not their last not their best not their worst but simply story number two when you suggested this to me rob my first thought was yeah okay why not but then as i thought more about it i thought yeah this is this is the story that isn't the big whiz bang introduction this is where you get to see them 
being the doctor and doing doctoring and having an adventure for the first time and how that's tackled differently i think is actually going to be quite interesting and i'm i'm looking forward to it and there's a real mix of stories in that list yeah it's a mix of stories that when you think about it you have probably never heard spoken about in one podcast before (laughs) (laughs) yeah so I'm, i'm looking forward to that yeah me too me too all right until then though i've been rob and i've been dave we'll see you next month bye bye you've been listening to the doctor who show the podcast where too much doctor who is barely enough subscribe to us on itunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on twitter at the dw show facebook.com forward slash the dw show is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined our version of the doctor who theme arranged by george Locke. look him up on youtube folks this podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only doctor who or names and sounds and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the bbc all other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners the official doctor who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who. Paul Darrow, love him. He is the man.